If you have a Bible, open with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans, chapter 8. <clears throat> Last week, we looked at an overview of this wonderful passage. Uh, looked at the fact that we're establishing sort of a base camp, uh, and we're going to take a, a number of hikes up the mountain because this is just, there's just so much here. Today, we're going to look at the first four verses of this wonderful book, of this chapter. And, and we're going to look at the fact that we are no longer condemned as believers. And we're going to look at that in three different ways, how that condemnation impacts each of our lives and how it is rolled away. Uh, interesting, as we, as we get started here, in chapter 5, just by way of background, for those of you that are new to the study, uh, we looked at Paul giving us a, a, just a beautiful example and beautiful teaching on what it is to be justified before God, to actually have the righteousness of God transferred to us. And, and it sort of climax there at the end of chapter 5, uh, as he says in chapter 5, verse 19, he says, for as by one man's disobedience... Many were made sinners, talking about Adam. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. In other words, from Adam until Moses, there was no law of Moses, but that didn't mean people didn't sin. Uh, but then when the law came, it actually illustrated, it actually, it fleshed out sin. And so, the offense abounded in that sense. But he says here in verse 20 of chapter 5, but where sin abounded, grace superabounded. Grace abounded much more. He says, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So as chapter 5 culminates in an explanation of the justification of the sinner, chapter 8 now goes into from chapter 6 through 8, he's been talking about sanctification. It's the sanctification of the saint. Uh, so interesting, both of these chapters, chapter 5 and chapter 8, they end by affirming the eternal security of the believer. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to do a lengthy teaching on that, but I do believe that can you lose your salvation? No. Can you leave your salvation? Yes. There are specific books that talk about specific passages, Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 10, that talk about apostasy. I believe that's different. And I love what Chuck Smith used to say. I remember being at a pastor's conference where he was doing a question and answer thing one time, and somebody asked him about eternal security, and he said, essentially, he said, don't ask me about yours. And I just thought, what a great answer. As for me, I am secure eternally. So, Chapter 5 talks about our security resting and depending on the son's life. Chapter 8, the security, and in context, at the end of chapter 8, talks about the dependence that we have on the Spirit's power. Because we're talking about all of chapter 8, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Greater context, sanctification, that we are set apart, that we are not only declared holy, we are being made holy. How does that happen? Through the agency, through the work, through the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Both of these rest in our Father's love. So chapter 8 begins with three words. And before we actually get into the text, I, I, because 
Folks, as you might be aware, there are no chapter breaks in the original. This is on a scroll. It was a big parchment, and they would just read straight through. We break it down. Man has added chapter breaks and verse divisions and all of that just so that we can locate things in the Scripture, and that's that's great. Not inspired, but it's great. We can easily get into a place where we look at these compartmentally and think, well, that was chapter 7, now this is chapter 8, and it's a different thing. No, it's a continual flow. So always important, uh, <laughs> if you've been around me much, you know that I hugely stress context. You've got to understand the context of a passage before you can really grasp what the text of a passage has to say. So these three words that begin with chapter 8, there is therefore, when you see the word therefore, you should ask, what's it therefore? Uh, I love that ditty. It helps me to just connect back to what's been said. And in the closing verses of chapter 7, the, Paul, the apostle Paul, he, he had demonstrated that just the, and, and he was utterly frustrated uh, that the law couldn't deliver somebody from sin. There's no power there. So as we wrapped up chapter 7, Paul showed us that that deliverance can only happen through the gospel. So backing up here in verses seven or 23 and 24 of chapter 7, he says, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Verse 24, he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So the picture here is that he's chained to a corpse. I mean, if you think about it, he's like, he's saying, I dragged this thing around with me. He's talking about the old nature, the corrupt sin nature that, that it, it is, it plagues all of us. Remember, we interpreted chapter seven as a mature or a maturing Christian, not somebody who's not saved as some say, oh, that's you know, just couldn't be a believer. No, that's a believer. That's the struggle that all of us have. It, it is, it, we are chained to a corpse, and that corpse is the old nature, that old me in that sense. And in his wretchedness, he acknowledges that he's unable to deliver himself from this offensive, repulsive bondage. That, that's, we saw that, that, that he spirals downward in chapter 7. He sees that the resolution of this issue of sin internally can't happen from within. He's got to have help from outside of himself. And as we got to verse 25, we begin to see where that help comes from. He says in verse 25 of chapter 7, I thank God. I love that. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, so that with my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. We looked at as we went through chapter seven, the two natures that those dueling natures within the flesh lusting after the, the spirit, the spirit lusting after the flesh, the flesh so often having position in my heart, the spirit wanting that because the flesh doesn't have power. The spirit of God brings power in our lives, power to live, power to obey, power to live a sanctified life. There is no power in the flesh to do that. Going back in my own life, uh, I was a young guy in the advertising business in, in my 20s, early 20s. 
and uh, sort of working my way through the ranks of, of a billboard company that I worked for and had become their sales manager and was, you know, didn't know where it was going, but you know, my, my career was on track. So the owner of the company had this great idea that he wanted to have a pilot <laughs> and he wanted that pilot to be me. So he signed me up for flight school <laughs> and I was out at, I don't know if you guys know where Spanaway is in Washington, south of Tacoma. I lived uh, in Tacoma at the time, and uh, the company was in another town, but that's where I lived. And so I was headed out to Spanaway Airport every Saturday for flight school. I'd finished my ground school, and uh, I had been you know, flying. And if you know that area, Spanaway is sort of at the base of Mount Rainier. Well, Mount Rainier makes its own weather. And we went out this one particular Saturday, and now I was actually in the cockpit, and I was flying the plane, and the instructor was sitting to my right, and this particular Saturday was rough. We got out there, and we're just in a little Cessna 152 trainer. I mean, I call it the Volkswagen of the skies. <laughs> it's just no power, and it's great to train. I mean, it's, it's a very forgiving aircraft for stupid pilots like me and all of that. So we decided to go in, and we went down, and, and we, we got into final, got into the pattern for the airport. It's a little airport, no towers, so you always you, you learn that you have to read the skies and go in a pattern, otherwise you bump into other planes, and that's not good. So uh, I went down, uh, circled the airport, got into on the final approach. I got my flaps down, and like I said, it was a rough day, and this <laughs> downdraft of wind. Uh, we got caught in a wind shear. And this downdraft of wind, it was like a fist took that plane and just shoved it down, down, probably three or four hundred feet, just like that in a second's time. My impulse as an inexperienced pilot was pull up because we're in trouble. I wouldn't be the pastor of this church had that been the case because we were in trouble. The pilot or the, the, the instructor yelled at me, hands off. And then he did something that I will never forget. I live it in my mind's eye every time I share this story. He pointed that plane at the ground and hit full throttle. And I'm watching the ground coming up like this. I was a little stressed out at that moment. There was a stall warning indicator. What happens is that in these little planes, they got a, it's a tube outside on the wing, outside the cockpit. There's a tube and it points backwards. And as long as the, you're flying right... The wind just flies past that tube. It doesn't go in. But the minute you start to stall, the, the wind spoils around the aircraft and it starts to do this. And when wind goes up that tube, it has a little squeaker. It's like a little horn. And inside the cockpit, it sounds something like, and this thing started going off in my ear. And then he put that thing <laughs> full throttle and put it at the under the ground. And the only way that you can pull out of a stall is you've got to get air moving right across the wings. He got us to where <laughs> it was virgin timber at the north end of the runway. I know it well. Uh, <laughs> and when he pulled out of that, literally that nosedive, I felt like I could throw my leg out the plane and kick the top of the trees. It was that close. We put the plane on the ground. He actually had me land it, which was thrilling. Um, and I got out, I walked around the plane, walked around the tail, and I walked over to my instructor and I stuck out my hand and said, appreciate all that you've done. 
I won't be back. <laughs> My boss was not happy with me. He had paid a lot of money for those flight school lessons, but there was no way. Uh, and I've flown since then and, and I have friends in planes and over the years and all that. But the point is, is that's sort of like Romans 7. <laughs> Paul, I mean, he is headed in. He is so disgusted with this corpse that he's chained to. He is so put off by the fact that he tries to do the right thing and he doesn't. He doesn't want to do the other thing and he does. And, and he's saying, he get, and just it throws his hands in the air. That's what I picture. And says, who will deliver me from this body of death? But at the end, we see that he applies power, pulls up, escapes death. That, that illustration has just been so vivid to me when I look at the transition from Romans 7 to Romans 8. We're going to go through, as I mentioned, the first four verses, no longer condemned. Read through it with me, if you would. Verse 1, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. First of all, I don't know, I'm teaching out of the New King James Version, reliable translation of the Bible. If you have a New American Standard, you'll notice in verse 1 that some translations, including the NASB, which I love, don't contain the last end of that verse, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So does that mean that this is uninspired text? And I want to go through this because there are textual, mild textual differences in God's word and people like to pick on them. No, it is absolutely inspired. Look at verse four, same words, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the reason for this is that when the King James and then subsequently the new King James, when, when that was developed, uh, the manuscript evidence that was available at the time, back in the 1500s, 1600s, that, that those manuscripts included this in verse 1. As new manuscript evidence was developed over the years and centuries since, that drops out of verse 1, but it, in all of them it remains in verse 4. So whether it's intended or it's implied, it belongs here. Because... We're, we're told later in this chapter that it's impossible to please God in the flesh. So I, I say all of that because I want you to have confidence. We're going to confidently study this because it's here. Whether it's in verse 1 or verse 4, I'm going to teach it in both. But uh, just understand, if, if your Bible omits that, that's why. It's not something that alters God's word. So... Moving on from that, the word therefore here in verse 1, it looks back, as I mentioned, to the desperate struggle in Romans 7. And the praiseworthy proclamation as he pulls up uh, and says, I thank God at the end of it. So from being stalled in despair and defeat, the apostle now by the Spirit's empowering climbs out with the proclamation, there's therefore now, 
in Christ, we'll, we'll get to that, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Three ways this applies. What, what do you mean, no condemnation? How are we condemned? Well, the first is eternal condemnation. You are no longer eternally condemned if you are in Christ Jesus. There's no eternal condemnation as far as our sin is concerned because we are in Christ. There was condemnation as long as we were in Adam. We looked at that in chapter 5. But now we're in Christ and therefore we're as free from condemnation as Jesus himself was and is. Think about that. When he shares his righteousness with us, when he imputes righteousness to our lives, that God the Father, when he looks at me and he sees me clothed in that righteousness, he sees me in the perfection that Jesus lived. That's amazing to me. The second way that we're no longer condemned is we're no longer practically condemned by God. What I mean by that, and practically, talking about practice here, the practice of our lives, in in chapter 8, at the end of this chapter, in verses 31 to 35, Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions. We're going to borrow that for this morning's study because it applies. He says in those verses, if God is for us, who can be against us? He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is he who condemns? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Folks, this applies to us. But we do well to keep this in mind before we condemn another. Does anybody need Mary in here this morning? Good. I'm going to change it up. (laughs) I didn't want you to be picked on. Let's read this as though it were a person. I mean, because he's speaking in broad terms, but this is personal. And you can put your name in there. Or the person that you're maybe not all that thrilled with. If God is for Mary, who can be against her? Who shall bring a charge against Mary? I'm glad there's not a Mary in here. Who is he or she who condemns Mary? Who condemns her? Who shall separate Mary from the love of Christ? Make it personal, folks. That's the point. This is deeply personal. This is talking about us. This is talking about we are not practically condemned before God. And therefore, how do we treat a brother or a sister? Yes, there are those who are condemned before God, those who have not released their life to Christ. And and, and so often we get into this mindset of of, uh, looking at people in the world and and being aghast. And yeah, there are things that happen that leave me pretty speechless, which is hard to do for a preacher. But the point is, is that Those people are acting, they're just being faithful to their nature. All they have is the lower nature. All they have is the sin nature, the flesh, and that's it. But he's given you, he's given me a new nature. It's part of the deal. It's part of the package. It's a birthright if you're in Christ. The point here is the grace of God applies equally to you as it does to me. Oh, my heart aches when I hear of churches that are just all jumbled up and that are all caught up in tension and, and the division and all of the stuff. That's a proof that people are not walking by the Spirit. They're in the flesh. God forbid. Another thing in this is that uh, something that, that I encourage leaders around me and, and that I am mindful of myself is don't dwell with other people according to their lack 
You hang around somebody for a while, you're going to know what that lack is. You're going to know their weakness. You're going to know that area that is just not together. Don't dwell with them according to that. If you in your life have been bathed in the grace of God, like I said, Jesus said, you know what? When people look at you, they should see the love that you have for one another. They should see that as a mark that you belong to Christ because the grace of God that you've received certainly applies to them as well. Give that love away. So we're not practically condemned. The third thing I want to look at here is we're no longer self-condemned. It also means that there's no need for the kind of self-condemnation which we see with Paul in chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am. Look at me. I just can't. He just goes on. I had a question. Do you set a higher standard for yourself than God does? Do you aspire to live by a higher standard than God does in his grace towards you? I'm not talking about perfection. Jesus did that. Perfectionism. Are you a perfectionist? Folks, I want to tell you, I have lived as a perfectionist. (laughs) And I know me. Far from perfect. And it's something that that God got my attention on years ago. And I still battle it. Because I want things just so. My wife will tell you that. She knows all about me and still loves me. Remarkable. But perfectionism, it often involves raising the bar to absurd heights in our own lives. Striving in our own efforts for something that only God can do. And it's especially dangerous when we place it on another. It'll rob your joy. It'll nullify grace in a practical way. I mean, the grace of God still rests on your life, but it'll nullify grace in your own life because you're trying to live by some self-imposed standard. Allow God to work in your heart. Allow that shift to come about to where you're looking at him as the source of righteousness, not yourself. Uh, That's the emperor's new clothes. So shifting here in Romans 8, 1, he presents us with three, no less than three anyway, essential doctrines of the gospel in one verse. The first one that we see here in verse 1 is a spiritual union. The Spirit's mentioned only one time in chapters 1 through 7 here in the book of Romans. In chapter 8, over 20 times, almost every other verse if you average it out. So at the center of this verse, in in verse 1, are the three words, in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? What it speaks to is the spiritual union that we have with Christ. It's also speaking to the spiritual union that we share amongst ourselves with one another. So when we look at that, what is my identification? How do you know, and as a guy, as a man, men, very often we identify our lives with what we do. I mean, that's why it's so hard for some when they retire, which I personally think is an illusion. I mean, there's uh, <laughs> something that I don't intend to do. Um, but it, it's true. We, we, we find our identity in, in what we do. As a believer, we find our identity in Jesus Christ. He is my life. He's not worked into my life. He is my life as I'm sold out wall to wall for Jesus Christ. So the spiritual union that we have with him through the work of the cross is also what he spoke of in John chapter 17. <laughs> and 
I love referring back to this passage. It's packed. It's the prayer that Jesus gives in the Garden of Gethsemane right before, or he may have been walking through the city, doesn't locate him, but is right before he's arrested and taken off to be tried and crucified. He says in verse 20 of John 17, he says, I don't pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You know who he's praying for? Us. He's praying down through the ages here. Yeah, he's prayed for the guys. He's prayed for the men around him. But now he expands that prayer. He says, I'm praying for all of those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So how is it, gang, that we can all come together from so many different walks of life, so many points of interest that are are varied. We have different tastes. We have different ideas. We have different ideologies in, in, in an earthly sense, in a temporal sense, because we're one in Christ, in Christ. By his Holy Spirit, we find our common union. We're going to receive communion today. It's a common union. It's a spiritual union that we have with him. It's either or, by the way. If you don't belong to Christ, then you're not in Christ. You can fix that. It's a simple prayer. Sounds something like Father or God, I've lived my life away from you. And I recognize that I don't have, I am not, my life is not aligned with you through the work of Jesus. I I don't have a spiritual union with you. I maybe had one of my own making, very common. And I want to turn from that life, ask you to forgive me for my sins and work a new life in me. He will do it. We're talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit here and he will do it. He will bring you into spiritual union with him. It's the only way, and it'll be the first time that you find real power in your life. As I said, it's either or. Uh, We're either in sin, in our sins, or we're in Christ. There's no fence. You notice that it's like you hear about like a meth house, and everybody's there together. My parents were alcoholics. They hung out at the cocktail lounge because everybody that they identified with was there together. They found their identity in that. There is nothing like finding my identity in Christ and then having a common identity that I share with you and that we share together. It's the glue that binds us together because we are in him. The second thing that we see here in verse one is a sound judgment. When he says no condemnation, did you know in in the original language, that is a legal statement. It's as though you're in a courtroom and the charges are there, and each one of us knows what those are in our own lives, you know that you're guilty on all counts. But because we're in Christ, because he's borne our sin, the verdict is not guilty. That's what it means. When when he says, there's now, therefore, no condemnation. It means you are without being condemned. It, It literally is, you are not in a legal sense, condemned, and in this case, to death, because that's the the, the penalty for sin. Jesus has borne our sins at Calvary. The law can't condemn us. Up until then, it does. But it can never condemn us in Christ. 
It'll, it won't condemn us on the day of judgment. And it won't condemn us today. This is a present continuing judgment. That's the tense of this word in the original is it's a present continual tense. There is no condemnation. That means no condemnation right now and now and now and now. For in the life of a believer, it's an ongoing thing. And my heart breaks at times. And I know that our lives get jammed up sometimes. My heart breaks at times because I see somebody who is caught up in condemnation every day. Every moment of our lives, God judges the thoughts, the deeds, the intentions of our hearts. And and we know that he ought to condemn us. There's every reason that he should, but we're not judged. We're not condemned because he sees us in the beloved. Ephesians 1, 6, Paul says, he says that he has made us accepted in the beloved. Praise God. It's so easy to see ourselves outside of that light. I tell you, my friend, that's the flesh. So what's the difference between conviction and condemnation? Because we know that part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we'll look at it as we get into uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a future study, but conviction is always specific. John, don't do that. John, don't watch that. John, don't say that. Oh, how I wish I would heed that more. Condemnation, on the other hand, is you're such an idiot. You just can't get it right, can you? Oh, John, is there ever hope for you? Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, and he is. Folks, that's my flesh. And I need to understand the difference between conviction, which is the Holy Spirit's work of of keeping me aligned keeping me in that spiritual union with Christ and condemnation, which is something that's like I have this little dark cloud over my head and I'm just bombed or I'm just depressed, right? And I'm not saying that things don't get to us, but understand there's a huge difference between conviction, the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the condemnation that we experience at times. The third thing here that we see in verse uh, 1 is a sanctified walk. There's two sides to this. We've looked at this as we've looked at sanctification in chapters 6 through 8 here. There's both a moral and an experiential change that comes about in us, as well as a legal verdict for us that that we're talking about here. He, He said there's no condemnation in Christ and there's a distinct and ongoing work of sanctification as daily we're led by the Spirit. So we have been declared holy, set apart, and we are being made holy, set apart. Verse two, as we look at this, we're going to look at what it is at the why there's no condemnation. He says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. These are two opposing laws or principles, two opposing natures within me, And the characteristic principle of the Holy Spirit is to empower believers to live a set-apart life, a holy life. As we saw in chapter 7, the characteristic principle of indwelling sin is to drag a person down to death. That's why he does this stark contrast, and he drills it in over and over again. I want you to understand something about each of these laws that he talks about, the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death, is the law of sin and death is based in the justice of God. 
is sin against God? Absolutely. Does God judge sin? Absolutely. It's based in the justice of God and it's motivated by fear. I, I'm always reminded of in, in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, when Israel got to the base of Mount Sinai and Moses is up there and the mountain is smoking and quaking and lightning and the whole deal. And the people say, um, Moses, you talk to God and we'll talk to you. We really don't. And, and God said, if even a beast touches the mountain, it's done because he's holy. And the law of sin and death is based in his justice. And if that's all we have, we need to fear. But the law of the spirit of life, Christ Jesus, is based not in his justice, but in his grace, because Jesus has already satisfied God's justice. That's part of the work that was done. It's a central part of the work that was done at the cross. The holy requirements of the law were fulfilled in him. It's based in grace. Not motivated by fear anymore, it's motivated by love. So because Jesus has once for all satisfied God's justice, we no longer to need to live in fear. We do not need to be fearful. We do not need to be in the condition that Paul was in in Romans chapter 7. That's why we have that illustration there, folks. So that's why he's in the nosedive and by the Spirit's power, we pull up and we fly right. We fly well. Anyone who is in Christ, therefore, has been set free. Acquitted. Fully acquitted. In the courtroom, you know you're guilty on everything. (laughs) The jury comes out, sits down, hands the judge the slip, and he says, not guilty. Not condemned. You're free to go. Remarkable. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life is a higher law than the law of sin and death. That's why we're not condemned. That's why we get a pass because of the blood of Jesus that was spilled on our behalf, because of the work that he did in atoning for sin was done. When he said it is finished from the cross to Telestai, it was finished. No more do we need to try to work that thing out because it's an impossible task as we see in the preceding chapter. The point here, there are 613 laws I mentioned last week in the law of Moses. The law of sin and death. <laughs> and I wrote a couple of things down here. I'm going to read them because they, they crack me up and they probably won't you, but nowhere does it say thou shalt not sayest vile things to the man who cuttest thee off on the road. It doesn't say that. Nowhere does it say thou shalt render the overpayment of change back unto the checkout person so thine till shalt balance doesn't say that. And you could go on and on. We could make all of these rules for things that happen in our life, in our culture, in our day. They're not there in those 613 laws of Moses. Oh yeah, you can find out what happens when the axe head flies off the handle. Hasn't happened to me lately, but I'm glad it's there. But we have the law of the spirit of life. It set us free from that. The point is, the Spirit of God is always there to come alongside it, in endless situations. Yeah, that's the John, don't say that. <laughs> that's the John, don't do that. That's the, don't go there. That's the, do go here. It's, it's, it's an ever-changing landscape in our lives that's addressed. The law of the Spirit of life is valid for life and living every moment of the day. That's why the ministry of the Holy Spirit is critically important. 
That's why it's important that we're not engaged in life-dominating sin because we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit working in us at that time. It may not mean that we're not saved. It may be the case too, but it, it may be because the ministry of the Holy Spirit changes. When I am sinning, it changes from that of empowering my life, the law of the Spirit of life, to coming around and saying, don't do that. <laughs> don't go there. Don't thoughts, words, and deeds. You know, that's the basis of God's judgment. And that's what he works in my heart. And that's how I grow as a believer, as I cooperate more and more with the work of his spirit that indwells me, sets me free from the law of sin and death. I don't have to have 613 rules. I have endless motivations of the Holy Spirit in my life. John, love that person that's maybe bugging you, not that lovable. John, stop what you're doing and go and help that person. John, and, and John, John, and you put your name in there. That's the work. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's the spirit of life, the law of the spirit of life. Endless circumstances, endless situations. Hebrews calls this, that he's an ever-present help in time of need. Verse three, he says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. I love that. God did. Past tense, not me. It was him by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So the trouble was not with the law, but with fallen human nature, with that corpse that's chained to me. The law spoke to men who were already sinners. So it, it, as I mentioned, there's no power there. They were without the strength to obey. In Romans 5 again, in verse 6, he says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will a righteous man, for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So much for the excuse. Well, as soon as I get my life together, I'll come to God. According to this, you will never have it together enough. Throw yourself upon the mercy of God. Enjoy being washed by the grace of God. So, the question is, what was God's solution for what the law could never do? He answers it here. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. It's a reference to the humanity of Christ. When Jesus came, he was fully God and fully man. Simultaneously, he didn't stop being God when he took on a body and when he took on flesh. He was fully both. This is a reference to his human nature. Now, I want to make clear, not his sin nature. He didn't inherit a sin nature. He, he came as a human being and, and had a human nature. He still has a human nature and divine nature at the same time. But the virgin birth, the reason for the virgin birth was to cut off the lineage of man so that he could be born of God. And that nature would be not transferred to him. The point, he says, on account of sin, not sins, but sin. He died not only for the sins which we commit, but for our sin nature. That's the point. In other words, Jesus died for what we are as well as for what we've done. You see, that I sinned is not what makes me a sinner. That's my nature outside of Christ. Because that's my nature, 
I sin. So often, and I hear preachers giving long lists sometimes about sins, which I find sometimes helpful, but mostly not. Um, when it's my nature, it's, it's the old thing of what makes a horse thief a horse thief. You might be thinking, well, stealing horses. Wrong. <laughs> He's a horse thief the moment that he conceives the thought in his own mind and heart, I'm going to steal me a horse. He can't steal a horse unless he's already a horse thief. We cannot sin unless we are already sinners. And that's the point where Jesus died for our sin, for that sin nature, as well as for the things that we do as a result of it. Do you understand that? It it makes me kind of mildly nutty inside because we want to pick at sins. That's like trying to scrape off a band-aid off of cancer. It, it's it, The cancer is what we need to address. Repenting of sin, embracing Christ, getting a new nature. That's the power of the gospel. It says he condemns, condemns sin in the flesh here at the end of verse 3. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's that term, in Christ. So Jesus became sin when he hung on that cross. That So what was God's solution? He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh that he might meet sin, as it were, on its own ground to condemn it, defeat it, and destroy it. That's the power of the cross. That's the work that was done. So now, being in Christ... The result of that, he says in verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's that term again. So as we relinquish control of our lives to the Holy Spirit, we're thus empowered to love. Folks, this is why it's not about the checkboxes. This is why it's not about keeping the rules. This is why it's about a, 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 a dynamic relationship of of living and moving, having our being in him. That's why we're free. Because the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. In Matthew 22, Jesus was being tested by the creepy guys. It doesn't say creepy. Well, maybe there's a Greek word for creepios. But he's being tested. It says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-five. then one of them, a lawyer, <laughs> figures, no, I'm kidding, um, asked Jesus a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said this, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two, notice he says two, not three. It's not love God. Love your neighbor, love yourself. No, (laughs) our problems, usually we love ourselves a lot. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. They're fulfilled. Jesus is telling these guys it's not a checklist. It's an attitude of the heart. What Jesus says there in Matthew 22 is what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 8. And folks understand we're all in process. And if you're engaged in this process, praise the Lord. It's not a process where I'm condemned every time I blow it or I I screw up. I ask God to forgive me. I receive his forgiveness and I move on. We don't have to live there in the condemnation that sin can bring. We can stay current. He is, I'll tell you what, repentance 
is a vital, vital mechanism. Yeah, it, it gets religified. You know, I think of, you know, repent. I think of, you know, the, the preacher in the tent with the revival meeting and all that. That's not what it is. What it simply means is to change your mind. What it simply means is to stop going that way and start going that way. I don't know where your life is this morning, but if you need to repent, if you need to change your mind about some things about God, I invite you to do that. Do business with him. Loving God, loving others. The entire law and the prophets hangs on that. We're all sinners, saved by the grace of God, filled by the spirit of God, empowered now to live a life of loving obedience, loving God, loving others as we respond to the grace that we've been shown. I don't know where you're at again this morning, but if you're wrestling, perhaps you've been living under condemnation, perhaps there's sin that you need to repent of, that you need to change your mind about instead of, well, I'm okay, I'm a Christian, I've got freedom. I've heard that so many times over the years and the end of it is disaster. Give God access. Open that particular door of your heart to him. He's not going to violate your will, but he will come in and work. He will come in. And it's just, see, I look at that. It's like my life. It's like walking down a long hallway that's lined with doors on both sides. And there are times where the Lord has taken me. I remember when my daughter went to heaven. I walked down that hallway with him and, and he stopped at a door. And I looked and the sign over the door said, never coming back in this life. And the Lord said, won't you come with me? through here, through this door. I remember being out there, my life just kind of shipwrecked, going down that hallway with the Lord and coming to a door that says, I make all things new. John, won't you walk with me through this door? What's over the door in your life, in your heart? He loves you. He wants to pour out his spirit in ever increasing ways in your life, in your heart. Give him access. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm not going to take you down here and then just leave you as orphans. He says that to his men. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to just leave you hanging. That's not, the, that's not the Jesus that we love, that we serve. Give him access. Allow the Holy Spirit to do the work that he desires to do in your heart.